On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. We're so excited to talk. Yesterday, Maggie was like, oh, we pushed the publication date. Do you want to push the interview? And I was like, no, I really am dying to talk to her. (laughs) Like, like you can't make us wait. Yes. I'm like, I can hold the episode. I don't want to hold the interview because... I blew through this book. Let me show you this, if you can see. The, all, her oh dog, my goodness. all her dog ears. So I, I didn't really like it. <laughs> no. I, everything I loved, every sentence that blew me away, and every moment that I was like, oh, I did not see that coming. Yeah. I have particular tastes, and this, you hit all of my wants in a book. Okay, we probably have the same taste then because I think I have very particular taste. I'm like, oh, I want to write, you know, the things that I'd like to read. So we can talk about Uh, (laughs) what those weird tastes are. I love it. I'm so excited. (laughs) And I felt like it was, I've seen a lot of different marketing things, Luckiest Girl Alive, but I liked Luckiest Girl Alive. Yeah, me too. Ivy's different than Ani, though. She's she's ruthless. She's pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. Ani's pretty dark. Yes, yes, yes. Not that Ivy can't go there too. She can, but but I definitely got it was like as compelling to me as Gone Girl it was like could not stop reading it. I it was the fastest I've ever read a single book. Wow. Yeah, I mean I was so engrossed, really. If Corinne compares something to Gone Girl, then that's like yeah. that is like One the highest favorites. praise that she has. Yeah. So but also, I've definitely read Gone Girl at least five times. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, for fun. So you do have the same taste. See. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Recommended it to everyone. And talented Mr. Ripley. I had feelings of that. Yeah. But nothing in particular, just like you captured the feeling of it, which is pretty amazing. Patricia Highsmith, like, Mm -hmm. yeah. That was flattering. Thank you. I would not say that, but hopefully. No. Hopefully. I'll cut out all my gushing because nobody wants to hear it. But (laughs) so we'll start. We'll start with an appropriate interview. Okay. Today we're chatting with Susie Yang. Susie was born in China and came to the United States as a child. After receiving her doctorate of pharmacy from Rutgers, she launched a tech startup in San Francisco that has taught 20,000 people how to code. She studied creative writing at Tin House and Sackett Street. Susie has lived across the United States, Europe, and Asia, and now resides in the UK. Her debut novel, White Ivy, was recently longlisted for the 2020 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. So thank you for joining us. Susie. No, I'm super excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about your debut novel, White Ivy. So White Ivy is the story of a Chinese-American girl. And when she is in, I guess it's right before high school, she falls in love with a boy named Gideon Speyer, 
who was the son of a Massachusetts state senator. So Ivy and Gideon reconnect later as adults, and we follow Ivy as she tries to get her kind of version of the American dream by assimilating herself with the Spare family. But the Spare family themselves have their own motives on the reasons with associating with Ivy. So the book kind of explores the cultural differences between the two families' upbringing, but also I think at the heart, it's how far Ivy is willing to go to get mm. what she wants in life. Yes. Very quick summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And it, it's been discussed as a book about an exploration of race and class and identity. And it captures all of those things. But it really captured the feeling of being other. Because there are mm. mixed feelings with being other. There's powerlessness, but there's also optimism, right? If you're kind of mm -hmm. outside, you have this goal of being inside. And it's a very right. tangible goal. Like, this is what it will look like. And this is, I can see it all here. There's the desire to conform, but there's also like a resiliency with mm -hmm. being the other. And you're anchored to your past, but also really driven to achieve your dreams. Yeah. And I feel like the book really captures all of those things, which is no small feat. And I love what you said about how the other you do have this rose-tinted glasses when you look into something that, you know, it's like looking into a, a house that's very pretty from the outside, you know, when the windows are sure. open and you can see the people on the inside, but you're on the outside. And I think what's interesting is Ivy discovers that there is an allure to being the other. And mm -hmm. she almost, I think, near the end wants to preserve that, which I really wanted to capture. It's not just about trying to get in, but that's right. also acknowledging that maybe it's better <laughs> to have the rose-tinted glasses yes. and to live with them. Very well said, because I am very careful. I don't want to give any spoilers away. But yeah, that, yeah. But that was really well said. That doesn't give away anything. So I'll have to remember not to do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. On our podcast, we talk about complicated women, which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with layers. Our tagline is we're complicated. So we love to discuss women in fiction that have flaws or imperfections who don't always make good choices, but who we can relate to nonetheless. Ivy Lynn certainly qualifies as complicated. So can you talk a little bit more about her, what inspired her and what challenges did you encounter as you wrote her? Yeah. So what inspired her? So I'm actually really inspired by TV and and you know books obviously but also shows and even songs and I think around the time I wanted to write the book I was watching you know Breaking Bad, House of mm. Cards was on and there's all of these great shows where people do really bad things I mean Breaking Bad is essentially just watching one man self-destruct and I thought that's fascinating yes. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like you I've always liked you know dark characters Gone Girl is one of my favorite books so I had that first sentence come to me Ivy Lynn was a thief but you would never know what to look at her and once that sentence came, it's she sort of just sprung to life. I thought, oh, I'm going to have this you know, kleptomaniac girl and she's going to have this really weird upbringing and she's going to be very aspirational. So the arc of her story came to me, the big arcs, you know, what she wanted and then the, the periods of her life, I would follow her through and also how the book would end. In terms of the challenges, I think the biggest thing was how to get there succinctly because yeah. <laughs> the book covers a long period of time. And I thought, do I go into her college years? Do I go into her, you know, go into the workforce? So it was really cutting out events in her life that aren't as interesting and focusing on her relationships with her family, but primarily Gideon and then and his family. 
I think that was the biggest challenge. A lot of the drafts in the in the middle that my editor and I went through was just about paring down to you know key elemental scenes and making sure the flow of her narrative was compelling. Yeah, made sense. Yeah. So you answered a question that we we were probably going to ask you a little later, but since you've brought it up. Did you write those scenes? Like, did you write a lot of her in college? Because we don't see her. She gets into college and then we jump 10 years later. Yeah, no, Karen, I wrote everything. Okay. <laughs> um, I think her childhood parts, I had, I wrote the scenes of her shoplifting. Uh-huh. I had scenes where she's fighting with her parents. I explored, when she moved to New Jersey, I explored those scenes. Okay. Kind of interesting to me in my head. Yes. So, yes, I wrote all of it. I think the Spares had another sister I had cut out. Okay. <laughs> Their family oh. was bigger at one point. So there were scenes with the youngest sisters. Definitely not a precious writer. I think for me, it's all about uh, oh, I love finding the, the, the main story. Yeah, I love that. And it's probably why this book is so strong because you had so yeah. much to choose from and you're like, okay, we're just going to choose the best stuff here. Hopefully. <laughs> but I did want to ask about your eye on that. Mm-hmm. So once you, you've written it, you're like, I think this is interesting, but do you know what what are the best scenes? Or Because mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like, eh, or I love this scene, but it really kind of doesn't belong in the narrative arc. And so do you rely on your editor a lot for that? Or do you always have your eye on that as well? Yeah, I feel like for me, there's my eyes, the writer, and there's my eyes, yeah, the reader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as the writer, I'm interested in everything. You know, these are my creations. So I try to, I probably overwrite, and I think everyone does it. It's you're discovering who, sure. who the people are, who the characters mm-hmm. are. And I think my eyes, a reader, I always try to step back and think, is this scene propelling the momentum from the previous scene? Right. You know, right. is anything change? Is anything changing here? And if it's changing, is it too small of a change or is it too big of a change? change. And then it starts to feel melodramatic. Yeah. So I definitely do that on my own. But again, it's like this spiraling where I, you know, <laughs> yeah. do do this and then kind of go back, and it's very circular. And when I feel like the thread is there, then I have my husband read it. I'll have some friends read it, and of course, Mary Sue, my editor, and Jenny as well, my agent, gives really good feedback about, oh, we need to cut this this paragraph out. Um, Even if it's a sentence, they're very, they're very, very good about that. Wow. I need to work on the the reader because when I'm writing, as a reader of someone else's work, I see it. But when I'm reading back my own work, I'm kind of in love with it. And I need to sharpen that, (laughs) you know, that reader of my own writing kind of eye. It helps if you sleep on it. I find that sometimes I finish writing and I'm like, this is amazing. (laughs) But I sleep and I wake up. Yeah, You're that's Corinne's answer to most things. I, I say it all no, literally. the time. You I'm have like, no let's idea. Just sleep on it, Kate. And she's always like, "What's sleeping it's on true. it going to do?" But now your know. brain is working. It's true. Yes. I do. Yes. Do answers come to you? Like, if Corinne is, needs to think about something, correct me if I'm wrong here, Corinne. She'll think about it before bed, and then sometimes in her dream or sleep, <laughs> the answer came. Whereas I think of sleep on it, it means just shut it off for now and come at it with fresh eyes. But I think for Ukraine, it means even more than that. It's, it's both. Like, it's both. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. How about you, Susie? Yeah. Is it, it was yours just to like put something to bed literally so that then you come at it oh, anew? Okay. Yeah. Both. both. Yeah. And I also think putting it away and shutting it down, like I think I think I'm shutting it down, but probably something is still happening or, or right. the feelings about it change over time. I think like your intuition about it changes over time, which is mm-hmm. I think a different thing than having a concrete new opinion about something. Right, right. Yes, that's a good point. Yes. So I wanted to read a little bit of Ivy just from the first chapter, a couple of pieces I pulled. It's not 
It's not the way you'll read it in the book, but it's just the, the pieces I wanted to highlight. Ivy Lynn was a thief, but you would never know it to look at her. Maybe that was the problem. No one ever suspected, and that made her reckless. Her features were so average and nondescript that the brain only needed a split second to develop a complete understanding of her. Skinny Asian girl, quiet, overly docile around adults in uniforms. She had a way of walking, shoulders forward, chin tucked under, arms barely swinging that rendered her invisible in the way of pigeons and janitors. Her parents' mantra, the harder you work, the luckier you are. Her teacher's mantra, treat others the way you want to be treated. Her grandmother saw that she had no time to lose. She felt it her duty to instill in her granddaughter the two qualities necessary for survival, self-reliance and opportunism. An ivy grew like a wayward branch, planted to the same root as her family, but reaching for something beyond their grasp. Years of reconciling her grandmother's teachings with her American values had somehow culminated in a confused but firm belief that in order to become the good, can you tell me, pronounce the word? Tin, oh, Tinhua. Tinhua. Girl, everyone asked of her. She had to use the smart methods, but she never admitted how much she enjoyed those methods. She never got too greedy. She never got sloppy. And most important, she never got caught. It comforted her to think that even if she were accused of wrongdoing someday, it would be her accuser's word against hers. And if there was anything she prided herself on other than being a thief, it was being a first-rate liar. So mm. good. Thank <laughs> you. I've never heard anyone else read it. That was really oh, good. Yay. Way oh, better wow. than I am at reading. <laughs> I'll just, oh, I'll that's just come along on your book tour. Don't worry. There you go. <laughs> you do all my reading yes, for me. Exactly. I would love that. <laughs> We do want to talk about your writer's journey because yours is a very unusual or not obvious path. A doctorate of pharmacy, a tech startup, an award-nominated author. So did you always want to be a writer or when did you know you had to write this particular book? I think when I was a kid, I mean, I wrote my whole life. I came to the States when I was five. And so I don't remember when I first kind of loved English books, but I remember from even as early as first grade, you know, those scrap paper in math class that you you would get to like do your, you know, little math problems on yeah. and would throw away. So yeah. I remember just taking stacks of those and I would fold them in half and I would staple, you know, the creases to make my books. But I was really annoyed because the creases, you know, the stapler like wouldn't reach far yes. enough. <laughs> it would always have a really ugly crease on the side and that drove me crazy. Yeah. So I would constantly be making these books in first grade. I was a very goody-goody. And the only time I got in trouble by my teacher was she saw me doing this one day. And she was like, oh, my God, you're wasting so much paper. You know, go to the principal's office. So I think even then, I have such a strong memory of that uh, because I was yeah. in the principal's office, right? right? But it was my obsession with making books, like the physical act of doing that was stronger in me than kind of just writing. Like it didn't count if I was writing in my composition notebook uh-huh, and things like that. Right, um, right. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I, of course, you know, I've been writing stories my whole life, been journaling my whole life. Didn't think it was possible to make a career out of it. You know, I grew up with very traditional Asian parents in the career sense, at least. They were traditional in other ways. But mm-hmm. so yeah, kind of the pharmacy school thing was very typical career choice. And at 17, I had no idea what I wanted to be. So did that, hated it. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's why I went over to so I moved to San Francisco to do tech. And then how I came to write this story was 
I think I was you know, 26 and the, the, the startup I was working on had, it was sort of a maintenance mode. And I thought I can't wait any longer. It was really just a feeling of, oh, I don't want to wait any longer to try to see if I can finish a book. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of aspiring writers, they write a lot, but they don't finish anything. And that was absolutely mm-hmm. me. And I thought, I don't know if I can ever do this, but let me give myself a year. Like I gave myself a year deadline to see if I could finish at least the draft of White Ivy. And that's when the the sentence, you know, about Ivy Lynn came. Yeah. And then I said, okay, this is it. Let me just sit down and, and do this for a year. I love that sentence too. The, the sentence that sparked it all. I know. Yeah, I read a, a quote. I don't know who said it, but they said, the minute the first sentence is written, the book is written. Oh, and I, oh. it, it resonates with me so much now. And it's so much pressure. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's obviously so much yeah. pressure, but... It does feel true to me. Stephanie Danler has said that, that when she, she had been writing and writing Sweet Bitter, and when she got the first line, you will develop a palette. She was like, the whole book came together as soon as yeah. I had that first line. So yeah. I, there is a magic there, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. on our podcast, we normally talk a lot about fate versus free will and how the two work mm. together to shape our lives. And Ivy's mom mentions a Chinese word, Mingyun. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When talking about Ivy and Gideon, I loved having a new word in my vocabulary because we are constantly <laughs> calling it fate, destiny, kismet. Yeah. For most of the book, Ivy's fate and her future is in her own hands. She doesn't let anybody else take the reins, but she does have moments like that when she reconnects with the Speyer family that are so essential in where she's going, but also not at all what she planned. So we wanted to know for you, do you have any stories on your journey to writing or publishing this book that in hindsight, you're like, that was really important and I had no control over it, that it felt like more than coincidence. I love this question. I mean, we could talk about fate versus real forever because that's something I'm really fascinated with. But on the publishing process, yes. Even looking back, I thought, oh, wow, I was so lucky in so many ways. One example just being how I met my agent, Jenny. I went to Tin House, which is a you know, very good writers conference in the summer. And I think my third day, it's a week long. And I think my third day there, I was having lunch and my agent just sat next to me at lunch. (laughs) And she said, hello, I'm Jenny. I said, hello, I'm Susie. And there's a whole bunch of us. And we talked very briefly. You know, she asked what I was writing. And I think I pitched my book. I think I was maybe halfway done at that point for the novel. And this was in July. And I said, I'm writing about an Asian American girl, sort of like an Asian Edith Wharton type book. I think I said House of Mirth, Mm -hmm. but she she was like, great, send it to me when you're done. And I was like, oh my God, I can do that. (laughs) This is amazing. Can I get your email? And I never ask, you know, I'm extremely (laughs) against asking for things. And then I think in November, when I had finished the draft and I thought this was readable, I sent it to her and she got back to me the next, she's like, I remember you, of course. She got back to me the next day and was like, yes. Like I read it, you know, let's meet up. So what? Even when I look oh, back, wow. Yeah. I thought she got back to you the next day. Like, oh, I remember you. I'll take six months to read this now. No, no, she oh, emailed me back that's... next day and said, I finished it that night. Let's <sighs> meet. Yeah. Um, oh, so even when I look back on that, I'm so shocked, I think, by um, yeah. just the, the good luck of it, you know? Yes. And people will say, oh, well, if you were a tin house, you know, obviously agents are going to be looking at you. Mm. They know you, I mean, it's, it's got a very low acceptance rate to get in there, but at the same time, lots of people go to Tin House. Right. Yeah. Not everyone has an agent down next to them and say, send me your book. I love the sound of this. Let's do this. So, and they don't sign and then go on to get a deal and all this stuff. So 
So did you not do the typical, any of the typical querying then? That was it? You sent it to Jenny and the rest is history? Yeah. So between Tin House and when I sent it to Jenny, I'd also gone to the Slice Literary Conference in Brooklyn uh-huh. and I submitted the China chapter in my book. Mm. I submitted that for, I think they had a competition, just a writing competition. Submitted that chapter because I felt like it was the most standalone chapter yeah. of the book, which mm-hmm. didn't need context. And that actually ended up winning the prize for that. And I think one of the judges on the panel, there was also agents on the panel. So I sent it just to very, like maybe three or four agents and then went with Jenny. So yeah, this is, this yeah. is what I mean though. It feels very much serendipitous yeah. in, in a yeah. lot of ways. That you guys and I only went to Slice because I think also a friend was like, the friend I met at Tin House told me I should go oh to Slice. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so, so all yeah. roads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. We're both lawyers mm-hmm. for a long time, kind of rejected that there was anything but free will and like sheer muscling through everything to get what you want. And we're both very mm-hmm. aggressive people. We're both people who get what we want. And the first little piece that can, and this will bring us to our next question. The first little piece that came in for yeah. me and I think for Kate too was astrology. And you're like, huh, this seems to make mm. sense. So like there's something else going on here besides my free will, but yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm obsessed with those like personality quiz. Like there's no BuzzFeed quiz. Yeah. I will not take. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, <right>. Which Disney <laughs> princess are you? You exactly. know, all of those things because it's, it's interesting, right? You're like, am yeah. I like this? Yes. Is this like sort or people all yes. like this? Sort right? me. And, yeah. yes. and the more, you know, it's like, obviously you can't be reduced to one thing. Like you're not just a Hufflepuff or whatever, you know, but right, right. but when you put them all together and you're like, look, all of these things do make up my impersonality. Yes. So you're right. This is bringing us right to astrology on every episode in one way or another. We discuss astrology, which up until this moment has been Western astrology. But you introduce us to Ivy's Chinese zodiac sign and elemental quality. She is a water dog. And our Google research tells us this is most similar to the Western astrological sign of Libra, which is my rising sign. According to Ivy's grandmother, being a water dog means she is brave, self-centered, and selfish. And also something we do on this podcast with every interview is deep dive on our author's Instagram page and find out things that you've put out there but probably didn't know I was going to use. <laughs> so if I did my math right, you are an earth dragon. <laughs> so that and that, again, Google corresponds to the Western astrology sun sign of Aries, which is my sun sign and my rising sign. Earth dragons are smart, ambitious, and hardworking. Sounds right. Thank you. Right? I mean, it's not my opinion. That's what's out there. <laughs> I think there's other adjectives I put on top of those three, but maybe I'm those three lower down. <laughs> well, they're all in there. They're all in there. Yeah. So. Are you into Western astrology or Chinese astrology? All of it? Yes. I mean, you kind of already answered this question a little bit. Like, I definitely can't say, you know, if I say, I I mean, I love it. I think it's interesting. I do not consider myself informed. Mm. I know I'm a Gemini and I identify very strongly with that. You know, the idea of having multiple personalities and, you know, being a little bit mercurial depending on who I'm with. I tend to definitely reflect people's energies back at them. But at heart, I think I'm really introverted, but people would not think Mm -hmm. that if we're just, you know, hanging out. So definitely did with that. In terms of Chinese astrology, I think it is just the zodiac, but it's such a broad category. You know, you can't possibly, people will be like, you're a dragon or you're a monkey. Like when I was young, 
you know, my brother is a monkey. My parents would always be like, dragons and monkeys are very compatible. That's why you two get along. (laughs) And it's like, but there's millions of people who do not get along who are born in those years. And it takes the the whole, and it's the full year. So it's like anyone born in that year. And and of course, that encompasses a lot of different astrological signs. We've had quite a lot of Geminis as creators, right, on on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And my husband is also a Gemini. I, you know, <laughs> they get a bad rap. And I, we have definitely done a lot to unpack that bad rap because it's like yes. the most obvious or basic thing people used to say, I think, was they're two-faced. But I'm like, no, no, mm. no, no. And what did we say recently? <laughs> it was that Geminis are so productive and industrious that they needed to reproduce themselves. So they needed two. And yes. that, that's why Make they're the two. twins. I like that. I needed to reflect <laughs> the darker part yeah, of I like that too. Yes. Yes. But it's a duality we've talked about yeah. with Gemini. Not that it's, you know, they're all split personality or something That's like that. Right, Although right. I do have a son who's a Gemini and I have to consult Corinne for advice because I'm like, I don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> so it's a little challenging as a parent. Maybe I could talk to yeah. your mom. But, <laughs> yeah. but they're they're never boring. No, I will say that, that. And that's my that's my no. number one thing in a partner. So that's why he yeah. and I work out very well. <laughs> so I wanted to go back a little bit to your writing process and wanted to talk about the kind of everyday bits of it. Do you write in the morning? Do you write at night? Do you write every day? Do you write in bursts? Do you listen to music? Kind of whatever you want to share. Because some people are very precious about it. I don't think you will be, but um, about <laughs> no. I don't need you to reveal anything you don't want to reveal, but just generally speaking, what are some some things that you always hold true? Yeah, I think I'm quite, maybe this goes back to the Gemini thing, I'm quite extreme in the way I write as well. I definitely do the burst. I'll write pretty much, I can do 10, 12 hours if I'm really focused, sometimes 14 hours in a day. And then I tend to give myself kind of big deadlines. So I won't necessarily say I have to do, you know, X number of hours a day or some pages, but I will say I want the first draft done, you know, three months from now or six months from now. And that will be, you know, my North Star. And I'm always evaluating where I am on that scale. But after the three months, I will take a whole month and do nothing but read. I'll be super burned yeah. out. I find that it's really hard for me to say, you know, from nine to five or nine to, you know, one, I'll just sit here and do it. I don't think I've ever worked that way. Even if in school, things like that, it's always, I didn't procrastinate so much as I wanted to get things out of the way. Mm. So it was sort of, uh, I have this thing I need to do. Let me just write the paper all at once and do it as quickly as possible so that I can have the chunk of free time to myself. Mm. So I'll definitely work that way. And I think it really suits the editing process because that is very much, you know, you get a draft back with your editor's comments and then there's a general idea of when you want to turn it in back to her. So I work really well and that's, you know, do this, do this draft and then get a break when my editor is going over it and then repeat the process. But there's no normal day, I would say for me. <laughs> but when I am doing the the drafts or working toward the deadline, I definitely work every day for quite a long time and then burn out, burn myself out and then complain about right, it, obviously. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. And you mentioned you're revising. Like we wanted to ask about that too. Like what was your process of revisions for White Ivy, either on your own or with your agent or editor? And if you are writing something new now, do you feel like your process has changed at all since White Ivy? Yeah. So recently, actually, I was talking to Mary Sue and she told me that I almost gave her a heart attack with my, I think was my fourth draft because that was supposed to be the penultimate draft where she, you know, was like, 
this is, you know, you have these very light changes. And then once you make these light changes, that's it. But of course, I heard this is everything you're going to write now is going to be printed forever. So I was like trying to question everything. And I was thinking, is this the exact sentence I want? I think she got it back and she did the track changes. You know, we oh compared the two drafts and she was like, you changed 40% of this manuscript. Oh, wow. And so and she was like, you gave me a heart attack, Susie. Mm. So then she, you know, took a bit of time to get it back to me. And I think that was the fourth draft. So after that, we did one big one and then just one final, final one. So to me, I was like, yeah, I'm only just doing, you know, the bare minimum. Right. <laughs> but she, she said I changed a lot. <laughs> and in terms of, this, this, the second book, which I am working on, how it's changed. I feel like in the beginning, I had wanted to change certain things. Like, you know, I was going to be more deliberate in making choices about which scenes to write. I was going to plan things. Of course, none of it worked out. I think I'm writing exactly the same way I did the first one, which is, oh, I think I should have this. I think I should have a draft finished by November, probably. So let me, let me get on it. (laughs) We had another author say that, that the second book was so much harder because she knew so much would be cut out and she didn't want, she's like, why am I going to write stuff that I know is going to end up being edited out? I just want to write the good (laughs) stuff that's going to be in there. But that's, it seems it's not how the process goes. No, I think, no, I think my biggest, I guess it could be a strength, but also weakness is that I tend to spend, like if the time writing the first draft is like a pie chart, I would say like 75% is just rewriting the first 50 pages. I think I'm very obsessed with how the book's, starts because I mean it goes back to the first sentence because for me when I decide what book to read it's always you know I read the first chapter read the first two chapters right and um and rarely does my opinion drastically change if I stick with a book that I wasn't too sure about you know the very first two chapters so and the setup has to be really compelling so I've been stuck in that 50 page loop now for the past Mm -hmm. year I mean I must have written a thousand pages just of the first 50 pages and it's not editing either it's just changing the you know, changing the entire plot or changing the characters or changing the setting. But now, uh, knock on wood, I think I've committed to this okay. track after I've tried, you know, 5,000 other tracks. So hopefully we'll ride this way down. That's the reader in you yeah. again. Like, I love that, that you're thinking of how you read something, which is, you're right, I think how most yeah. people do. If you don't mm-hmm. get those first 50 pages or so right, you're going to lose yeah. someone. And that's a really, that's smart. You put on your sort of reader's view for that. Also, Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. And it's also why I just, one of my best friends emailed me and I sent her a book and I'm like, if you don't, I wanted to support the author. So, and I already had a copy, so I sent Mm -hmm. it to her and I said, look, if you start it and you don't like it, put it away. It's just, that was, don't feel pressure for my gift. I just wanted to do this. And she was like, oh no, I've never not finished a book. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? You have to, I now put down books because if I don't love, I've never felt fine about a book 50 pages in or a hundred pages. I usually Mm -hmm. give it a hundred, a hundred pages in. And then at the end, I was blown away. No, that's never happened to me. So if I if yeah. I'm not into it by a hundred pages and feeling like this is worth my time, then I put it away. I'm now trying to do that. I do feel guilty still because I am a finisher, 
I think now I just lie to myself and put it and I'm like another right, time. Right. <laughs> yeah. when, yes. I'm a, when I'm a better yes. human, <laughs> I won't do this. Okay, so we have a segment on, on our show called What She Said, where we deep dive into the creators behind the books, TV shows, and movies that we love. And we just devour everything that these women say because we love the protagonists, but we also love the creators behind them. And we always find something that blows our minds. So who are the complicated women that inspire you? You can share a piece of advice you hold on to, or maybe it's a character from fiction, or maybe a real life woman that you admire. Wow. Oh my God, there's so many. Just thinking about writing advice, I would say there's two who I really admire. So one of my favorite authors is Ishiguro, and he did Never Let Me Go, which I read a million times as well. And I remember being so struck when he won the Nobel Prize and I was reading his speech and he talked about in a section about how for him, writing is just all about communicating feelings. It's one person sitting down with another person saying, I feel this way. You know, do you also feel this way? Mm. And I've always remembered that phrase so much because all of my favorite books, it is that. It's when it's something a really complicated, nuanced, sometimes not very pleasant emotion is articulated. And I think, oh my God, somebody felt this way. And, and that character, you know, felt that. And I always try to have that in my mind when I write, which is not about the big things, but about the small things, about the small jealousies, you know, the small hurts. And I think things that, you know, maybe we're ashamed of, or maybe it's just too small to articulate to a friend even, but to put that in the character's head, hopefully readers will feel less alone. So that's one I always think of. Another one recently, I was watching, I love Sally Rooney as well. Yes. Um, all people read, read all of her books. Oh yeah, of course. And she, I think in an interview said something which also really struck me, which was about writing scenes where, I think this is about normal people, where the relationship between her characters change. So it's always at a moment of crisis for them. Mm. And I thought that's such a great guideline for, especially for someone like me who tends to write every scene, which is just about craft, about how to approach deciding which scenes to use and which scenes not to. So that's been really good advice. So I think those two. And then in terms of, is this limited to women? (laughs) Uh, No. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 Share. You're a woman. Uh, You're sharing what what inspires you. That's what we want to hear. Yeah. Looking at Tin House, that was my first, I think, very serious writing workshop. I didn't do an MFA. So to me, the the process of how people gave feedback on the book and even how people gave feedback to each other on their stories was really new. And so my teacher there was Josh Ferris. He led the workshop. And I feel like from him, I just learned how a writer even evaluates work. And he would always ask us this one question. He would always say, does this story take place in the real world? And I remember in the beginning, we'd be really confused, like, yeah, you contemporary or like fantasy? Like, is that what you mean? Right. But I think it was actually, does it feel authentic to the way that humans would behave? Mm. So mm. that it doesn't matter about the setting, you know, it can be in Narnia, you know, it yeah. can be anywhere. Right. Are they human? You know, are there recognizable aspects of the way they make decisions? Does it pass our bullshit detector yeah. to, to, to a level of, oh yeah, this is real. This could be my friend, my neighbor. Right. And I'll ask myself, I find when I don't know what I'm writing, my characters start to feel not real. It's like talking, you know, characters who right. say things that feel real, but not really. Right. Yeah, I would say those. It's missing like a heart or a, a soul or a, an authenticity behind it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is. yeah, yeah. but I would ask myself, set in the real world. Yeah, I still remember that from Tin House. I love that. 
Josh Ferris is married to Eliza Kennedy, who I okay. love. You should check out her books. They're okay. a little, they're darker, but funny. Yeah. She has two, and they're always lawyers. So I do tend to like lawyers. <laughs> I take you and do this for me. Okay. I love them. I don't know. I haven't heard any. She's like not on social media. I don't know what, I wanted to know what she's doing, what she's doing next. Yeah. When can I expect the next one? But that feels like a faded thing that that would be your instructor. And I didn't she, know. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, she's great. She's great. Sometimes we talk about, when we talk about complicated women, we understand that sometimes circumstances provide complication in our lives. Do you have a story about a failure that ended up being a blessing or something that changed everything for you? At the time, you thought of it as a failure, but now looking back, you're like, no, that was that was exactly the way it was supposed to be. Mm. A disappointment, maybe not a failure, a disappointment, a yeah. course correction that you didn't expect. Definitely. I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind is just pharmacy school. So it was very, I mean, you know, you guys are lawyers, so it's undergrad, right? And then four years of undergrad and then four years of pharmacy school. But the program that I attended at Rutgers, they combined undergrad and grad school. So it was shortened to six years, but you have two years of undergrad and you went directly to pharmacy school. So at the time, I think when I got into the program, I had no idea what a pharmacist was. I mean, it sounds so silly, but, you know, just like go to school, go to class, you know, get a job afterward. And it wasn't until I think I was three years in, maybe. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> what did I get this is what into? I'm going to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but at the time, you almost feel like it's too late. You've already invested three years of your life, you know, to getting this degree. And so, and the pharmacy degree itself is so specialized. So it wasn't like a history or English right. where I could just easily transfer my credits. And I remember finishing it everybody you know was making career plans and saying what do you want to do and I was you know wishy-washy I don't know and when I went to San Francisco to say I'm not going to do pharmacy that was I think so many people around me was like what a waste (laughs) you know what a waste of your education Mm. what a waste of your commitment and at the time too I also felt like am I throwing something away that I worked so hard for to get all these years but that was absolutely a blessing because number one, it taught me to take risks. Number two, it taught me that I do have free will, right? I don't have to live the default life. Yes. But I always think, you know, if I had got, like, of course, we always think, what, what if, you right. know, what if I had done that track? And for me, I always think if I didn't hate something so much, the way I hated pharmacy school, right. maybe I never would have tried to become a writer because your life is good enough. You would have right? been comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is good enough. This is what everybody tells me I should be wanting. And maybe I would never have had other other dreams even. So looking back now, I I think it was a blessing that I hated pharmacy school. Yeah. No, I think I love I love that you don't want a default life. I love that expression. So we know you're loving I May Destroy You. What other things are you loving right now? Books, shows? people that you're really into right now that our listeners might want to hear about. You've already mentioned a few that we share as favorites too. And on Instagram, you said you had just recently read the Rachel Cusk trilogy, right? Yeah. 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 I just, I mean, I've seen her books all over here at Waterstones and I've always been meaning, it's one of those things I've always been meaning to read them. Love her. I just recently read Fleischman is in Trouble, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. which I really liked because it's New York and I'm kind of, I was in New York before I moved here. So it made me really, you know, nostalgic and kind of homesick for that yeah. scene. Yeah. Yes. Which is 
live. Oh, that's where you lived? I lived in the Upper East. Yeah, that's yeah. where, yeah, I, I, that's where I lived. I was on the queue, the new queue. Yeah, me too. Oh, oh it's the I love the queue. It changed my life. It's <laughs> the best. You cannot, you, because I always live on First Avenue. So we were always down, you know, farther away to the sixth to hike. The queue yeah. changed everything. And you could be in Soho in 25 minutes. It was crazy. Yeah. So I think of the other things I've been discovering just from being here, other great English writers, contemporary English mm-hmm. writers. I recently read the Patrick Melrose series, which I love. I don't know if you guys have no, read them. but I've heard. They're so good. And also just been reading like Alan Hollenhurst. So mm-hmm. discovering the, the English writers here, which... I find really different than the contemporary American writers, clearly, but been really enjoying that as well. Nice. We just keep commenting on all our favorite shows recently are coming out of England. I mean, it was Fleabag and then I May Destroy You. Yes. And we're just like, is everything good? Just make, oh, and normal people. Yes, yeah. although she's Ireland. I know. I know. But from I, across that was, I just, that was, that was a comment <laughs> for your mom. I know. We can't, we can't confuse the Irish and the British. That's okay. Right. Well, Susie, I, I don't want to say goodbye, but we've taken your time. We've got we've gotten your interview. But I do just want to say again, I really love this book. I'm not Ivy at all, but well, not not at all. <laughs> My grandmother came from Puerto Rico. She had that immigrant mentality, like do the work. Mm-hmm. It was more my parents who taught me to be smart about what you're doing, mm-hmm. not necessarily hardworking. But so I had that sort of similar mixed messages and, and certainly the American dream and all of that. I don't know. I just, this book resonated with me so deeply. And I really want to thank you so much for writing it, really. It was such a joy to read and, and to talk to you today. You had so many great oh, things to share. So excited for your debut. This is going to be... I'm so honored. Be I remember big. when Mag reached out and was like, do you want to do this podcast? I was like, how did they find me? <laughs> oh, well, oh, you, do you know? So Christy is a good friend of mine. Oh. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she yes. had even that. Yeah, actually, yeah. thank you. Oh my gosh, I would have been so embarrassed if I had not mentioned that. She is a good friend of mine. I'm working on a book that's not done, but she was like, "This is a book that you would love because it." She had read mine, so she knew where I was going with mine. And my protagonist is Scarlet, and which is I like, love yeah. Scarlet. Scarlet and I Ivy are both like it. I feel like similar kind of old feeling, but new popularity yeah. names that I both mm-hmm. love. Anyway, so she said, you need to find Susie Yang and get her on your podcast because this is not only perfect for what we do, but also perfect for you. And she was right on both counts. So thank you, Christy, for that. <laughs> no, I'm really honored. Like really, guys, yeah. this is really fun. Good, good. <laughs> well, Susie, before we go, tell people where they can find you. You know, Instagram, Twitter, social media you like, or your website or whatever you want to do to promo yourself. So my Instagram is Suzy Y Yang. I think I probably post there most regularly. I have a Twitter, also Suzy Y Yang. And my website is suzybooks.com. Awesome. All right. Well, and Excellent. get this book, White Ivy. Read it. You will love it. Call me to talk about it, please, everyone who listens. <laughs> <laughs> we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. 
every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.